I'm Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hop Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a weekly podcast dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions, and stories from the whole brewing supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a glass, pour yourself a beer, and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. We all love a good yeast story, don't we? Sentences you never thought you'd say, but we do, don't we? I've got my fair share of yeast stories and nightmares that I kept me up at night. Uh, my most memorable one was brewing a chocolate ginger stout the Christmas of 2016 called Ginger Secret Santa. Uh, this particular beer, as the name would suggest, was a big, sticky, chewy beer with cacao nibs, ginger, about 10 different malt varieties, and a particular strain of dried yeast suited to London porters and ESBs. Now, it's important to note at the time I didn't work Fridays, so just bear that in mind. My youngest daughter was free at the time and with both parents working demanding jobs, as 21st century parents do, uh, we worked part time so that we didn't have to farm her off five days a week to nursery. Anyway, I had this open top fermenter absolutely crammed with this stout and the yeast took off like an absolute beast. I mean, there was practically no lag time whatsoever. And throughout Thursday, having pitched late on Wednesday, I was watching the Croizen get higher and higher and higher throughout the morning into the early afternoon. Come mid-afternoon, I started cropping the yeast as I was as sure as hell as that it was going to come over the top. Now, I had to pick my kids up from after school club that day. And after several crops, there was nothing left for it but to write a note to Tim, the production director, and explain what was happening and why I had to leave, hoping that he would, you know, the following day pick up the pieces and I'd come in on Monday and it'd all be okay. I spent a blissful weekend doing a spot of Christmas shopping at a Victorian market down Kellam Island whilst actively avoiding the brewery or thinking about it until Monday morning. When lo and behold, I rocked up to work early to find Tim sitting outside smoking a cigarette and reading his paper, which was all part of his daily ritual. Morning, he said rather dryly. And before I could even respond, he carried on saying, so that yeast he used. Needless to say, Tim hadn't cropped it or cleaned the fermenter and as penance made me scrub the entire outside from top to bottom where it all foamed over and run down the sides before transferring it and doing a caustic wash. Spent the vast majority of that day cleaning that fermenter. But it was a great beer though. Now, I'm, I'm sure we've all had yeast mishaps over the years or questions that have kept us up at night. I know I have, you know, was the lag time meant to be this long or should it have been longer? Did I pitch enough? Should I have given that lager a longer diacetyl rest? The answer emphatically usually is yes to that one. That's a story for another day. As I'm sure we've all played that world famous game. What's that off flavor? Obviously, in other people's beers. Yes. Yeast is as equally brilliant as it is a total bastard. But conquer these little single cell organisms in your beers and possibly even your life, then there's no stopping you from becoming the master of the universe or something like that, or even just the brew house. Periodically, I like to invite guests onto the show to discuss all things fermentation because it's a 
topic I'm really quite passionate about. And it's been a little while since we talked about yeast, probably a few weeks and counting. Uh, so I recently caught up with Bill McFarland from Omega Yeast in the USA to chat about yeast choices and fermentation profiles, mainly using Kvike strains and brewing uh, New England IPAs, Imperial Stouts and lager style beers. I mean, really, what are the beer styles do you want to brew? I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Don't shoot me. But seriously, though, what other beer styles would you want to brew? Amiga Yeast are based in Chicago and St. Louis and are made up of a dedicated crew of microbiologists, home brewers, professional brewers and craft beer fans who have made it their express purpose to make brewing easier and better for everyone. Just to be open and upfront, this episode isn't sponsored by Amiga Yeast, nor is it a paid supplier spotlight or anything like that. I merely asked for some suggestions for guests from the American brewing industry to appear on the show, and Bill's name came up a couple of times. So we hopped on a call and started chatting and got on really well. If you're interested in learning more about yeast, I would recommend the yeast book, which I do mention in the show from the Brewers Association. I'm sure most of you probably already own it as it's like a manual for life. But if you don't, it's absolutely worth its weight in gold. So before we dial in our fermentation temperatures, check our yeast cell counts and do a gravity reading for today, here's all the usual necessary blurb. If you like the Hot Forward podcast, then follow us on all the socials at Hot Forward Beers. Subscribe to the show and leave us a review on iTunes and Spotify and all of the good podcasting platforms. And visit our website, hotforward.beer, to connect with us and find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. For now, grab a beer and let's crack open today's discussion. Today on the Hot Forward podcast, I'm joined by Bill McFarland, who is the, a marketing specialist and project manager at Omega East. Hello. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, no problems. I saw you pouring a beer, a cheeky beer then. So, uh, what, 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 is it a cheeky beer? Oh, what was oh, it? Yeah, so this is a parallelogram. It's a double IPA by the folks at Bearded Iris and Cloudburst Brewing. So they're both... Uh, huge IPA, uh, New England IPA specifically brewers, and they they crank out some really delicious stuff. Nice one. Have you had it before, or is this a first first time tasting? This is my, I, they gave me a quad pack when I went to go visit the Bearded right. Iris uh, over in Nashville, and they, uh, this is my third one. So I got one more after this. It's it's damn good. <laughs> oh, mate, I've, I'm feeling some serious beer envy right now. I, um, <laughs> I I I I would crack one out. No, normally, I do when I record the podcast with people. If it's in an evening, I normally crack one out as well. But uh, um, just just before recording this, um, we had to weigh a, a mirror on a weighing scale um, to see whether that we could just hang it with a picture hook on the wall, or whether we needed like proper you know to drill in and put all the yeah. screws in and everything and my kids were like get on the weighing scales daddy i was like ah it's not really right time of day to weigh myself but they insisted i did and then they started slapping my belly and it was all like <laughs> it's like ah oh, i can't now go legitimately drinking beer on a monday night <laughs> you know, I need so um yeah the the peril the perils of working in craft beer and trying to uh, keep a maintain a healthy weight um, yeah, no, I, I feel you. I'm actually training for a, an Ironman triathlon. Oh wow! Um, 
I, 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 I'm a pretty, pretty active, uh, at least, you know, one to two hours a day. And it's like, um, I have like my mentality is like earn the beer sort of thing. So like, yeah, when I bounce around breweries so my, and, and stuff like that, and I talk with breweries kind of all over, um, you know, it's hard not to like have a convo with, without beer. You know what I mean? You're talking about beer, you're drinking beer and it's like, you know, so convivial and, and it's like, you know, that's why I have to get up. Like my, my routine is in the morning. I just go ham on, you know, a, some kind of training session. And then I'm just like, okay, I deserve a couple of beers. <laughs> yeah. See, I was having this conversation before with my wife when I was saying, you know, re- retelling the, uh, the, the weighing scale saga. And, um, she was like, oh no, but you can't, you can't be, um, you can't be, you know, trying to lose weight or go for a run just to, uh, earn a beer. But, you know, I'm kind of like, well, maybe, maybe I can, but it's, you know, I mean, cause I, I run as well, you know, and I've, I've um, done a, a 17.5 K run today, um, yeah. you know, and, um, but I, it's, you know, if I, if I want to lose weight rather than just maintain <laughs> it, I, I need to cut something out, but I'm, I'm, you know, I can cut out, cut out the junk food and snack, not that I have, that I have much junk food, but, you know, cut out the snacks yeah. and stuff, but quitting out the beer, <laughs> hmm. Not so sure, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> cool, no, man. So, w- w- why don't you tell us specifically um, what your role at Omega Yeast is? Yeah, so my role specifically, I, you know, before coming on to Omega Yeast, I worked at a few different breweries of different sizes. So, um, my background is in uh, geochemical engineering. Um, I went to school, got my degree, and I fell in love with home brewing like you know like many other brewing professionals did around that age and i kind of became the guy uh at my university that was home brewing for parties and things like that and i would just make probably pretty disgusting beer and but it was you know i'd dish it out and everybody would get really drunk and have a great time <laughs> uh, so uh from there i you know my my thing was like i want to open up a brewery um, and then, you know, there's different ways to go about it, of course, all of which are, none of which are easy. There's no yeah. easy way to open a brewery. So my idea was like, well, I'll make a bunch of money as an engineer. I'll save it and then I'll be the money guy. Um, so I was an engineer for a firm up here in St. Louis for about four weeks and then I quit. Um, <laughs> I was like, I can't do this shit, man. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, cause my mind was just on beer and it was just, I was like, I, I'm impatient. So, and then I kind of switched mentalities of like, well, if I want to open a brewery, I need to have as much experience as possible in that setting, you know, um, in the craft and in the day to day life. And, and so I, I essentially, um jumped off uh started networking with a lot of breweries and then i started volunteering at a local brew pub here it's pretty small uh called morgan street i was there for i was working there and then i got another in at another local brewery so at the same time i was working at two breweries um, and then i was bartending at night and then at a craft beer bar so i was like round the clock just kind of uh, immersing myself in the industry and you know, very fortunate to meet a lot of, um, a lot of brewers, a lot of knowledgeable beer folks. And so, um, and then I was there for about five or six months and then I got recruited down by a regional brewery in Atlanta to, uh, to be the lead production brewer. And so this is where, you know, we were distributing in five States. Um, we were brewing about 25 to 30,000 barrels, most of the same beer. We didn't have as much, you know, creative, uh, flexibility, you know, with being a much bigger brewer. And so, mm. um, 
yeah, I was just, I was learning a lot about uh, the day-to-day, the cellaring process, um, packaging quality, kind of all, all around experience. And, you know, I really um, had a good foundation at that point. And so, and I got to the point and at that point, my experience was brew pub, then I had a big regional brewery, and then I was recruited up by a startup brewery here in St. Louis. Um, and so that was, a, that was a, a big step for me learning the, um, the, the startup process when it comes to financials and taxes and then running a lot of production from the ground up, so to speak, especially like building a brand and understanding the industry from that element. I was there for two years, and then that's when I really turned on to Omega Yeast. Uh, the founder of Omega Yeast, or the, the co-founder, his name is Mark Schwartz. Um, he's also in St. Louis, and then he came in. You know, we talked beer, we talked yeast, and um, and then from there, pretty much we've switched everything over to him. We were at the point where we were running out of beer because uh, um, you know the the beer was going over so well um, on site that we were almost out, and so. He introduced me to a Norwegian Vike Strange, which ferment in like three to five days. Mm. So I was able to have a beer start to finish in, you know, a little bit less than a week. And so that kind of like saved my ass. And, you know, um, this is in terms of like, you know, running out of beer at a brewery is like the worst problem to have yeah. <laughs> because it takes a long time. It typically takes a long time to produce. And then it's just a lot, lot of facets uh, to, to, you know, make sure I dialed in. So, so yeah, and once I had a great experience with that, uh, the service was great. Um, the product itself is just bulletproof, and then um, they were they're super helpful with answering questions and helping me pick out strains and and coming from that element. And then I got to uh, a point where a position to open at Omega, and I reached out to Mark, and I was like, um, I didn't realize you guys were looking for folks. I'd love to to have a chat. And then he was like, Wait, you'd be interested in coming on board? And I was like, Yeah, man. He's like. Oh my God. Okay. So we met up and he was like, I, I technically interviewed, but it was more of just him and I chatting. Um, and it was, you know, we have a lot of fun projects and he was like, I'd love for you to be part of the team. I'm super glad you're on board now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so my, my, my role, um, I, I run the social media, um, and I work with the business and marketing team on really dialing in, um, you know, specialty projects and, you know, I communicate a lot with brewers all across the country on different forums, like, you know, Facebook group where you and I linked up. Yep. Um, and so it's pretty much, you know, my, you know, in a nutshell, my job is just to do whatever I can to, to help brewers, um, you know, dial in equipment, dial in recipes, um, you know, make, make their lives easier. Yeah. As you touched upon just there, um, connecting with brewers over Facebook and whatnot, um, what are some of the most common things that when a brewer reaches out to you like some of the most common problems that they have when it comes to yeast yeah when it comes to yeast i get a lot of questions about um proper nutrients when it comes to different strains uh which strain is best for you know whichever style they're trying to dial in um, i get a lot of questions about yeast management about you know how many questions like how many generations can i get out of you know this lager strain what's the best fermentation temperatures in order to you know maximize ester production and those kind of things yeah 
So when, as a supplier, that's obviously contending with other suppliers to, to uh, sell their products and services to, you know, a, a reasonably limited amount of breweries. And I know you, you obviously sell stuff to home brewers as well. And yeah. you'll have to forgive the pun, but how, how do you pitch yourself to a brewery and convince them to use an Amiga East over maybe one of the competitors out there? Um, you know, the first thing, you know, our thought process when it comes to talking with brewers, um, you know, we we believe we have the highest quality product in the market um, simply because like our, our, you know, what makes, what separates us from a lot of the competitors um, is really like we, we do have the freshest yeast on the market simply because, you know, as a profession, professional brewers, when they order, we don't stop, start propping their yeast until they order. Right. So it's, we don't bulk make yeast and just have it sitting around in the cooler kind of thing. So it's like, if you're a professional brewer, we kind of reverse engineer that process. So instead of, saying like, oh, do you have this on hand? You know, the question becomes like, hey, I'm brewing, you know, next Wednesday, I'm brewing, you know, uh, 15 gallons of a 10 degree Play-Doh Kolsch or something. Mm. Can I get some of your Kolsch two strain? We're like, absolutely. So we reverse engineer it, get the volume and get their target gravity and then prop up the exact amount of yeast that they need. Oh, right. Okay. Make it better. So, um, you know, to us, that's that's as fresh as it can possibly get. <laughs> and then yeah. we have it to them like when they need it. Like the, the, if they're brewing on a Wednesday, we ship out Monday for them to receive on Tuesday and then they're using it Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what that means is shorter lag times um, and then a vigorous fermentation and then just really consistent results. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure most home brewers and even some professional brewers out there you know in their homebrewing days have, have propagated a yeast themselves you know whether they whether they've literally just got a you know a vial of yeast and shaking it in a container or they've got the stir plate and all the rest of it but when you're having to grow yeast for a much larger scale can you just talk us through that process and how, literally you get that phone call like yeah we, we need a big hitting yeast for our imperial stout that we're going to brew by i don't know in 15 days time like what happens then? Yeah, so um, so we have a, a proprietary yeast propagation method in house, and so it really does start with, you know, we we have all of our strains like deep deep frozen, <laughs> um, and we have a, a a vast variety of strains. And so, for instance, if you are brewing an imperial stout, say, you know, the starting gravity is going to be you know thirty two degrees Plato. And I'm, you know, I'm brewing it next Wednesday, right? So, um, so that process start. You send us an email, confirm the order, and then that's like that day is when the process starts for us. Um, we propagate it up um, essentially by by calculating biomass um, and giving, you know, propagating just the right amount of uh, efficient biomass in order to meet the fermentation specs. Um, yeah, and that starts out with small amounts, and then we scale it up. Uh, to pretty much the exact amount we need. And we have a director of quality and uh, director of operations really dialing in the processes to make sure everything's efficient and smooth all the way from, you know, get like right on the stir plate all the way to to the, to the packaging process. And then we're, we're dishing it out. Right. I see. I mean, for any brewers out there listening to this that um, are thinking of setting up their own little lab setup. Um, I mean, I, I know personally, uh, I don't, you've probably read it. There's a book um, it's from the Brewers Association. There's those um, four books on water, hops, malt and yeast. I can't remember who wrote the book on yeast. 
But it is, I've been to so many breweries where there's been a copy of that on the desk. And there's there's obviously a real passion amongst brewers um, when it comes to to yeast. I mean, it's it's obviously so fundamental to brewing beer. You know, it's the heart and soul of of brewing, you know, fermentation. Um, So, you know, I I think a lot more brewers are are showing an interest, um, particularly on the smaller end, um, to setting up some kind of lab set up. Um, yeah. So for a brewery that's possibly thinking, actually, I need to start um, having a, a lab set up and maybe even trying to have a go at, you know, um, pitching multiple generations of their yeast rather than just, you know, opening the dry pack and sticking one in each time. Like, wh- where should they start? Yeah, so, I mean, for brewers, whether you're a small home brewer and five gallons at a time or a you know, uh, even a big brewer, it's, you know, quality really comes first. And that really does start with having some form of lab presence. Um, you know, either you're propagating your own yeast, um, or they're just counting, you know, you're counting cells with a microscope to, to really determine viability, uh, to maximize your yeast pitches. Um, and so, you know, it really starts with just, you just need a few, um, few pieces of equipment. Um, it's kind of like a standard microscope, um, a couple slides, so you can count. Uh, yeah, count cells really dial in the viability, so you can see like when's the right, when's the optimal um, yeast slurry that you guys are using. Whether a yeast slurry is viable enough or whether it's not, and so it's really going to save you a lot of money on on the back end if you're able to avoid, uh, you know, pitching unhealthy sort of yep. yeast. Um, you know, that's, you know, especially for, for pro brewers, you know, small pro brewers, that's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a huge thing. So, um, you know, we, we make a handful of products to make things easier for, for smaller brewers looking to, to either propagate some yeast or to just to kind of like give it a little, old boost. And so we do, um, we have proper starter, which is essentially, uh, it's our, optimal uh, our, i'm sorry our optimal um calculated out wart and so you can use that as a, as a way to propagate you know a single homebrew pack propagated up for 24 hours it's enough for 10 gallons instead of five right you know those kind of things um yeah definitely a stir plate uh if you're looking to scale that up um yeah i'd say i'd say it's always good to, to kind of start there for sure yeah um, which strains are most popular right now amongst uh, craft brewers in the USA, and and why do you think there's a particular drive towards those strains? Is, is there, are there any trends that you can see with stuff that you're selling? Yeah, so we have a, a handful of strains. We're, we're particularly known for our Kvikes because um, we were the first to introduce them in 2015, I believe. And so, you know, we have um, we offer five right now. No, six, six. Sorry, I'm six right now because we have a gluten free one. Um, you know, and especially in the States, every single brewery has, you know, a tap room before, you know, the, the crazy storm of COVID. Yeah. Uh, had, had the three to five, you know, New England IPAs, so like really hazy, massively dry hop, robust IPAs. And so um, our, our super hazy strains, <clears throat> we got a few Kvikes that we actually have um, a handful of our customers who won a bunch of medals at GABF. You know the 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 hazy IPA category for the past three years has been using our our Kvikes. Um Our well-known hazy kvike is a Hornendal kvike, and it's just like huge stone fruit, huge tropical notes, stubborn haze, and it's 
done in like three days, yeah. which is pretty wild. Um, and then our uh, British Ale 5, um, which, you know, which is a standard ale strain. So it takes, you know, seven to 10 days for complete fermentation, but that's, you know, it leaves like a nice residual sweetness to, to really boost up like the massive whirlpool and dry hop additions. Um, but I'd say those, those two strains kind of, um, those are kind of our sweet spots. Um, we have another Kavai called Lutra, which is an isolate from our Hornadol blend and it's just extremely clean. And so we have a lot of folks brewing pseudo lagers with them oh, or right, just okay. any, any other clean ales with them. And, and some folks are even using them as, uh, for Imperial stouts and those kind of things. So it's really fun to see what brewers are doing with those. Um, yeah, but when it comes to more popular strains to reach the trends of hazy, happy or pastry stouts or, you know, any other crazy, pretty much crazy hop, hop driven beers mm. that, uh, that, that are coming out. It's, uh, pretty much those trains. Okay. W- with, um, those kind of hazy IPAs or double IPAs and stuff. Um, I mean, w- w- what, sort of brewing practices would you recommend um with yeast obviously in fermentation in particular mm-hmm. um to get the the juiciest flavors um, yeah. out of because obviously you know that fermentation profile really drives a lot of that not it's not just the yeah. dry hopping you know <laughs> you, you can only again in, it was in um for the love of hops by i think it was stan Hieronymus. um but he writes in that book um how um they did some trials on a brewery that used like 15 grams per liter and then 20 grams and 25 grams. And they actually found that you got more hop intensity through 15 grams per liter. So it's not just a case of obviously throwing more hops at it, you know, obviously, and as I said, the yeast does drive a lot of that. So like what practices could, for those kind of particular, those sort of styles that are really, really popular, what can brewers yeah. do? What, what sort of particular, any particular strains they should be using and, and what can they do with their fermentation profile to ensure they get the, the juiciest, haziest mother out there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah so when you know when it comes to the haze our suggested strains are a hornadol kvike our sb kvike um our vos kvike um our british ale five and then our, our our double ipa strain those are those are the strains that we're just like pretty much when people are saying hey i'm brewing a hazy what should i do it's typically one of those i'm surprised um, about the kvike thing um, you know, you've, you've listed three Kvike yeasts for that. I would, I wouldn't have thought because my experience with Kvike, um, not, I've not brewed one, but obviously I've, I've tasted them. Is you know they, they have a very particular kind of tang to them. So to have some, you know, and what I normally associate with an, a Dnieper or a, a Dipper is a, a really sort of passion fruit, citrus, mangoey, juicy, yeah, bomb more than that having that kind of like tang. So I'm, yeah. I'm just I'm just yeah. quite interested on that. So sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt, well, but I, uh... I yeah, and that's that's one of the things too. You because when I was brewing, you know, getting onto the you know, when someone told me to ferment at 90 degrees, you know, everything I'm I'm taught as a brewer was like, <laughs> there's no way I am not doing. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, you know, but, but once you know, once they took the took that jump, it was just like, you know, because I'm a pretty experimental brewer, so I was like, yeah, let's let's do it, let's give it a try, right? Because um, I'll try I'll try any of the, any of those things at least once. So, um, but yeah, I think when it comes to those hazy strains fermenting at, uh, on the higher threshold of the fermentation temperature, so, you know, so you're talking about, you know, anywhere between 85 and 95, uh, degrees Fahrenheit, uh, for those. And so, and it's, they definitely have a unique kind of, uh, you know, as you put it, a tang to them. And I, I, 
I, how I identified that, that Tang was kind of like a lingering little punch to him. Mm. Um, those, and those, and that punch can be, I've had it in some beers and it hasn't been as desirable, but the more, like I've had, I've had more beers be, ex- at, you know, damn, damn good with them. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and the reason being is because they typically pair them with, you know, um, a huge high protein grist. And so you're talking about wheats, oats, um, and some are using spelt, um, those kind of things, late dry hop additions. I'm sorry, not, I'm sorry, late whirlpool additions and late boil additions. Um, typically they're adding these at, you know, 10 or 15 minutes if they're going to do it on the hot side. And they have a huge whirlpool addition of, you know, where it's essentially extracting the oils with none of the, the like, you know, alpha bitterness, so to speak. Um, And then what I like about them too, is that each of them has kind of like its own, um, their own little identifier with it. So Mm -hmm. for instance, like Voskovike, one of my personal favorites when it comes to hazy beers, it really is much more citrusy and it has like a, not nearly as it's not as tropical as like a Hornendal or an SB or anything, but it has this like citrus marmalade kind of um, orange pineapple flavors to them. And it's like when you pair those with specific hops is, you know, it really comes out like pure pineapple juice almost. And it's like, to me, it's, I'm just I'm like, Oh, that's good. <laughs> You're in hazy heaven. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, you know, it really depends on, uh, a lot of the pairings, just with the style as, as a whole, with uh, you know New England IPAs or just hazy, juicy pale ales or something like that, is that it really comes down to you know what are you doing with your hops as well, um, you know, and, and having a stable haze really comes from both of those angles because you want the lingering um, oils um, in the in the finished project and the finished product, and you also want um, a lot of the ester production. Um, from the yeast to really shine through as well. So it comes with a lot of pairing and balancing. Um, what I've tasted is that a lot of, um, a lot of hazies that either come off a little unbalanced or have a little bit lingering bitterness or those kind of things. Um, it really just comes with really dialing in, you know, the balance between your grist, your water profile, and then also your, your hops and your yeast. Um, you know, but specifically like making sure the beer doesn't finish out too dry because you need that little bit of sweetness to really dial in and balance those hops. Hmm. Uh, so the flavor kind of stays balanced and isn't, you know, differing one way or another. Yeah. So how do some of these yeasts, like the white ones, um, handle the higher mash temperatures then? Because, I mean, obviously that's one one way you can get that residual sweetness. Yeah. Um, I mean, they handle it well. Um, you know, typically you know, with my experience when I was brewing them, you know, I was sitting at, you know, 154 to 156, uh, Fahrenheit. And I had a lot of success with them. Um, I personally like my beers like really dry and things like that. So yeah. I had to balance, like I had to take my personal taste out of you know, what I'm looking <laughs> for the customers, of course. And so, but yeah, I mean, they, they balance it really well. Um, and it really does like, you know, that's kind of our suggested temperature range when it comes to, uh, you know, for making these beers. Cause you want to finish, you know, anywhere between like 2.8 to, you know, 3.4 degrees Play-Doh finishing gravity. And you want to start, you know, you want to, you know, you're starting gravity anywhere between, you know, like 15 and 17 degrees Play-Doh if you kind of want like a six and a half or kind of range. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think they pretty much all the, 
all of our suggested hazy blends or hazy strains really uh, they complement that residual sweetness and that the pillowy um, mouthfeel that comes with you know high protein, especially with a lot of weeds and oats and things. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I'd love to explore a couple of other beer styles. So we'll, we'll go to the biggest hitter because um, obviously I know um, New England IPAs and generally hazy IPAs are the most popular. But I think something that a lot of craft beer drinkers really like, you know, if you particularly into like craft beer, quote unquote, is right. Imperial Stouts. Um, I mean, can you yeah. talk us through like, um, I mean, I mean, obviously brewing an Imperial Stout is a completely different beast and fermenting one even more so. So can you just, sim- similar question really to what we just discussed about hazy IPAs, yeah. but with Imperial Stouts, what, what would you recommend in terms of fermentation practice, strains and that kind of thing? Yeah, when it comes to the strains, you know, going back to the bikes, they, they've become, especially when, when fermented at higher temps, that they've really worked well with the, you know, the, the absurd original gravities of, uh, you know, of, of imperial stouts. Because yeah. typically, you know, especially now that, you know, people are turning imperial stouts into pastry stouts, you know, with just like an absurd amount of just all the, the crazy adjuncts and yeah, you know, and this, uh, <laughs> yeah just you know, French fries. You know. <laughs> yeah, whatever, yeah. Uh, Chicken so, nuggets. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's it's really it's really fun to to watch brewers, uh, you know, dial in their own kind of you know element to that to the style. Um, you know, when it comes to the imperial stouts, you know, especially for for small brewers, you have like a double mash, and you're you're collecting to a very specific um, bricks reading because um, you want to get the really heavy sugars, not necessarily the lighter ones. And so that typically leads you to have more masses. And so you kind of have like have to separate out and have to identify your heavy sugars from your lighter sugars to make sure it's not, you know, too, too diluted, sort of speak, yep. you know, cause I, when people want these Imperial stuff, they want them like, they want it like a syrup. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's like, it's a pure syrupy dessert, you know? Um, and so when it's, yeah, for those, you know, we suggest our Hornadol strains. Our Lutra, you know, going back to that one, it's it's really neutral. So, you know, it's our cleanest Kabike strain. So if you just want something to let the, the you know, the grist um, and the adjuncts and those kind of things kind of do the talking, like Lutra is perfect for that. Um, Hornadol in- integrates like a little passion fruit tropicaliness to it, which, um, which I found really helps with uh, more adjuncts than anything. Um, you know, if you're adding, you know, PB2 for peanut butter, or if you're, you know, adding orange zest or those kind of things, it really blossoms and really pumps those up. Um, and then, yeah, the Hornendal typically, if you ferment, you know, between 85 and 95, it's going to rip right through those sugars. Cause that's, that, that's the, the, the temperature range and the kind of sugars that bikes thrive in, you know, they, they, ha- they, weirdly enough, it's kind of reversed. So they have a hard time you know, low fermentation, low ABV kind of beers. Right. For some reason, I'm, I'm still personally trying to figure that part out. <laughs> um, <That's> so weird. <laughs> I know. It's like, you know, because we, we've had some folks, you know, try to do low ABV session beers with Kabikes. And they definitely work, you know, but that's, you have to make sure you dial in the right nutrients and dial in the right oxygen. And you even have to bump it up more because, you know, the Kabikes really thrive in that high ABV, high sugar, um, environment um yeah but when it you know those you know your grist is a huge factor in that making sure you collect the heavy sugars 
Um, you know, you typically start out, you know, starting at 30 degrees Plato and you'd finish somewhere in the realm of, you know, 10, 11 degrees Plato, which gives you like a nice, you know, 10 to 12 ish, um, percent beer. Um, yeah, those, those beers are, are pretty wild. Yeah, uh, the whole the whole thing's bending my mind a little bit. <laughs> truth be told, yeah. and again because I've I've had experience of a few and they've been okay, um, but again may, maybe as you just sort of said there that maybe they weren't high ABV enough. I mean I seem to recall them being around five percent, and um, you know maybe that's what it was. Um, but just going back to the imperial stout, so supposing you know someone's using just a kind of more of a regular sort of ale type strain mm-hmm. and um if it, it like basically starts to tail off on the curve you know when you're drawing your graph each day taking readings or yeah. any listeners listening to this you should be taking your readings every day twice um but we'll let that one go for the time being personal book bear um but um you know you start to see it tail off and you think oh crap this is gonna like finish out too early like what can a brewer do at that point to ensure they get the maximum you know that they're hitting their terminal gravity and not stalling that yeast too early yeah and i think you know especially with that tail the tail end of fermentation it really that i think that element really comes into you know it, it takes you back to the to the preliminary processes of making sure that one you have enough viability in your strain you you pitched enough yeast um you know so that goes to checking your viability whether it's, you know, as a home brewer, you're making a starter. As a pro brewer, you're making sure that, you know, you're, you know, it's optimal biomass kind of thing. And that's what we do. So, like, for instance, you know, when someone, a pro brewer orders, they'll say, like, we always ask them, like, what's your target starting gravity? You know, because, like, sometimes it's like if, you know, some people just want a standard 6% beer, then some people want 14. And so, you know, if you're making a 14% beer, we obviously have to, calculate even more biomass for you so it goes to very thorough fermentation um yeah but especially when it comes to the 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 tail end of fermentation it comes down to those factors and also you know making sure you have the proper um you know you dialed in your oxygen and also your nutrients um and so there's a lot of there's some misconceptions that you know kvike strains or just you know pretty much any other ale strain or anything like that doesn't necessarily need um certain nutrients or doesn't need oxygen you know when it comes down to it you know what makes you know yeast thrive really comes down to you have to give it the right food so to speak and what that food is making sure it's the oxygen making sure it's the nutrients yeah so it it comes down to dialing in that element of 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 your recipe and, and really just making sure you know the yeast is fully equipped to do its job. Yeah. I say. <laughs> Before um, I touch upon one more beer style that I'm quite interested in, and I think it's gaining more and more traction amongst craft brewers. Um, a, a, a bit of a more of a personal question regarding um, a, a fermentation that I had um, the Christmas before last, and I, I had another um, yeast centric podcast episode um, where I discussed this but I'd love your take on it so I, I brewed a um, a Christmas ale it's something I try and do every year although I didn't do it last year but it was 2020 and it sucked you know and yeah. it was all <laughs> that's enough of it. in years to come you know it's like you, you someone will say to you why don't you do that and you're like oh it's 2020 and they're like fair enough mate 
that'll be the excuse for all time um but uh, yeah i i brew this christmas beer it's um eight percent it's like a spiced christmas ale and um it's got a load of simple sugars so like honey um molasses golden syrup that kind of thing yeah um i did a yeast pitch with uh, just it was a dried ale yeast, you know, but it was it was all, all in, you know in date, re, you know, very reasonably in date. wasn't the freshest pack ever, mm-hmm. um, but you yeah. know it wasn't near the end of its shelf life. Uh, made sure I got yeah. did the calculator with the you know the starting gravities and all the rest of it. Pitched it first few days, absolutely tore through like a beast the fermentation, and then it for the next i think it was seven days between i can't i wish i had the sheet in front of me actually um probably between 10 30 or something it like proper lagged you know it slugged its way to terminal gravity and i kept thinking is it is it going to make it is it going to make it i mean it did it, you know it just took a long time why was that why yeah. do you think that was just by the sound of it um so it just to go back here, the the vo- how much volume was it? Like oh, five gallons? Right. Yeah, yeah, twenty five liters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I th- I think maybe, you know, when it comes to that dry yeast, um, it doesn't need. It's not as oxygen dependent as much, just because they 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 dry it out specifically to tailor to those needs. Yep. But I've you know my experience like, you know, it might have just been the that it was like higher, a little bit higher ABV and like dry yeast kind of sometimes has a hard time with that unless right. you really go over the board and pitch more, you know okay. what I mean? So, um, yeah, dry yeast really, I guess the, 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 the big pro about having dry yeast, um, is that the shelf life of it is, you know, as long as you keep it in a relatively stable condition environment, it's, it's in good shape and you can kind of use it whenever. Hmm. Um, and I would say, yeah, that'd, that'd probably be my best bet that it might have lagged just because, you know, wasn't accustomed to the, the 8% isn't super high in gravity, but it's probably enough where it kind of like put it in a zone of kind of uh, instability, I guess. Right. So should it's have kind of slowed, slowed, it down, slowed it down a little bit. Should have pitched more regardless of what the internet says. Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess just one more question, and I guess I'm picking your brains more for um, – I guess my own personal reasons. Um, so I, I used to work in a 10 bar brewery, um, you know, and again, we, we use dried yeast there. Um, but then I, I left that and set up hot forward, but I, um, I've set up a one barrel brewery in my basement. Um, so oh. it's, and I, I guess I, I want to start using more liquid yeast, um, mm-hmm. rather than just the dry stuff. But, um, at that volume, how would I, scale up a so let's say i got an omega yeast from like the malt miller which i think stock it in the uk yeah. how would how would i sort of scale that up to brew a i don't know a 6.8 percent ipa for example yeah because i'm 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 guessing like an urn i've got like a, i think i think it's a three liter or two liter in my flask but i don't think that will be big enough in terms of should, um, would there have to be an intermediary stage like you know scale up a bit in there and then scale it up in a homebrew bucket or something before pitching it or so one of the things you you know could go about doing is um well first off when it comes to our packets when it comes to scaling um you know we always suggest making a starter uh, if it's like less than five months 
right. five months old. So first off, it, you know, understand the the package day, and then for the one barrel element, you could produce a little bit depending on what strain you're using. Use a little like um, brew maybe be a uh, lower ABV beer or not even low it just standard. You know, like five percent. I don't know, neutral, like a blonde ale or something like yeah. that. You know what I mean? Um, and then use that to really, almost as like a propagator. Right, um, okay. You know, yeah, de- depending on your equipment. Um, and then once you have it kind of naturally propped up a little bit during the second gen, you should be able to really like meet that one barrel standard. So if you, for instance, you know, a six, a six and a half standard IPA, um, Yeah, you know, if you use Kvikes and if you ferment 85, you'd be able to really like under pitch a little bit. Right. Okay. And hit that one one barrel threshold. So if you were to pitch, you know, a two liter, a, uh, yeah, if you have like a two liter starter and then probably add two packs and then use, you know, some kind of proper starter or some kind of starter as a, as a whole and prop mm. that up for probably about 48 hours. Like you should be able to hit the, the 48 or I'm sorry, the, the, you know, the one barrel mark with that. Right. Okay. Cause the, I think this is what I found in terms of the, the, the size I am. It's too big to be a, a standard home brew size, but Ooh. it's way too small <laughs> to be a commercial brewery size, yeah. you know? So it's, uh, this is what I find. It's, it's quite difficult to find yeasts um, without having, you know, that I can just pitch. So obviously if I still worked at the brewery, I was at, I I could just phone you up or whatever and be like, oh, can I have this yeast or whatever? But um, or if I was literally doing twenty five liters, I could literally just pitch it. But yeah. because it's a, it's because it's bigger, it's a it's a it's a big version of small. It's mm-hmm. really quite difficult. I found to to use liquid yeast without having to go through you know a lot of stages to to, to step yeah. it up um, because you know unless I wanted to buy seven, seven packs, which I don't, cause it'll be uh, yeah. expensive. So yeah. cool. Yeah, um, that's one of the things that we found out with optimal biomass is that, you know, there's a whole conversation regarding, you know, specific cell counts, which, which is a, it's a good conversation to have and it's very important. But what we found out was like every strain actually kind of differs. Right. So for instance, you know, the Kvike strains don't nearly need to have as much volume as, a standard ale strain of a, you know, a British five strain or something like that. Um, so, yeah. And I think when it, when it comes to, when it comes to those things, it's like, especially if you have, you know, uh, like a little setup or, or a little, like a baby lab setup or, or something like that, you know, that stepping up process can be, uh, it can be kind of a pain in the ass to learn. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> you know, there's, a lot, there's a lot of touchy processes and temperatures and timing and, and things like that. But um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Like the, the, the biomass cell count discussion, um, you know, like for instance, like we found out that our French Cezanne doesn't need nearly as much, you know, biomass as, as a Kvike or another more flexible ale strain compared to, you know, that strain. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's, it's funny how just the, you know, uh, yeast strains, you know, mutate towards certain, certain volumes and styles and things like that. It's very interesting. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there is one more beer style that I'd like to talk about, but I know you were mentioning biomass earlier, um, and I'm, I'm not that familiar with that term uh, and what that means. So can, can you talk about the technicalities of that and what, what, what you mean by that, just in case anyone's 
like me, has picked upon you saying biomass a few times and keep coming back to it. What, what do you mean by that? And what, what effect does that have on uh, yeast cell counts and fermentation and stuff? Yeah. So like when, you know, when we propagate, um, or we, we custom prop our yeast strain, we focus on biomass to make sure that it is, it's optimal biomass, which means it's, uh, the correct amount of lively, um, fueled yeast, I, sh I should say. So whenever you get, you know, a, a pro pitch, it comes in what looks like kind of like a big milk jug almost. Um, and there are some residual sugars in there that it's continuing to eat over time, but it has a proper amount of biomass in order to kind of naturally prop itself up and really sufficiently and to, to really hit its target, uh, to gravity. And that's kind of, kind of what makes our process unique. And that's also why we custom and fresh prop it because it really is that, um, you know, like going back to certain strains that, um, it really comes down to optimal biomass and every strain has a different um, efficient threshold that it can vary. And so for instance, when we propagate for our French Cezanne, it need, doesn't need nearly as much, uh, you know, biomass when it comes to, you know, um, as like a, another ale strain. Um, and it really just every, every strain kind of has like, you know, saying it again, has its own, uh, you know, optimal biomass volume that, that is needed to really hit its, uh, its target, you know, sugar uh, environment and things like that. Yeah. So when, when the yeast are being sent out, is there a little, is it still sort of in an active fermentation state then? So it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you like make a, a starter and it's kind of like, you know, you, you, you get to like 40 hours and it's kind of like it's growing and it's, and it's still, if you left it, it would ferment out. Is, is that what's, is that what you mean? Is that what's happening? Basically they get the package and it's kind of in that state of perpetual motion. So when you put it in, it's kind of like they're, they're all armed and ready for battle and they're going charging in rather than being a bit lazy and, oh crap, get the shields on and the swords out yeah. let's, let's go fight <laughs> yeah um yeah to, to a certain degree um you know we try to take out as much you know when we when we package we make sure it's at it's like optimal phase of activation so right. it's like yeast is like chomping at the bits and it's hungry um and what we try to what we do when we package is that you know we take out um as much residual sugar as you can it's impossible yeah. to take out all the residual sugar of course so it's naturally going to eat a little bit of the you know the trace sugar as it's being being in, you know in transport um so we send um our yeast you know for pro brewers and like insulated boxes with cool packages and all kinds of things like that to make sure it, you know it can withstand any kind of temperature differentiation yeah um you know but that's why we always pit say like whenever you know pitch the yeast as soon as you have it you know because essentially the longer uh longer yeast sits the more dormant it's going to get you know for instance but that's why we fresh we fresh prop so you know which is why we don't make an absurd amount of yeast package it and just let it sit in the cooler you know what mm -hmm. i mean so you know so when we send it you know it stays cold as possible and so once you get it what we suggest is like putting it at room temp for a few hours and then once it's at room temp for a while it's like ripping it's yeah. like chomping at the bits and they kind of like slowly um <laughs> it starts to expand in the package <laughs> expand the pack a little bit yeah so like you know once you pitch it's like you know our you know, the lag times are yeah they're they're almost non-existent it's just ridiculous i um i brewed a um a new england style uh last week using our newest strain bonanza uh which is um 
essentially our, our um, a pure banana heavy strain and the lag time was 45 minutes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which is, so it was, it was just ripping. Yeah. Um, and all I did for, you know, a 15 gallon thing was, you know, prop up two packages, create a starter for about 12 hours and then I pitched it and it was just, it was hungry and it was ready. So, uh, but yeah, you know, when it comes to, um, yeah, that packaging, it's, that's, that's really the big benefit of, you know, having, um, extremely fresh yeast is that it's hungry and the lag times will be short. And what we've actually found out and we have some data behind it is, um, you know, fresh yeast actually leads to even more robust esters, more noticeable esters. And so we do a lot of like triangle tests and blind taste, blind taste testing and for, for sensory analysis on different strains, you know, cause we're always brewing with it on a, on a, on a smaller scale too. And we've we've tested fresh yeast to one month old to two month old to three month old yeast and they're wildly different with the same wort and so it's it's been really fun to see like you know when we when we have a lot of customers who switch over to us they're kind of you know blown away by it to a certain degree so it's like you know we offer a lot of equivalent strains to you know some of our competitors and some others out there but it's mainly our, our, our process of propagation and how fresh it is, is what really is the really difference maker. Yeah. One other beer style that is proving more and more popular uh, amongst brewers at the moment, craft brewers in particular, I think our, our lagers now, I know lager kind of covers a, such a wide range of beers, everything from Pilsners to box to um, my box, you know, just, it's just endless, isn't it? Um, but obviously, you know, it's a different type of yeast, a bottom fermenting yeast. Um, so, again, similar question to the other ones, like just talk us through um, lagering beer. What are the, some of the best strains for lagering, some of the best practices? Um, because I, I, I tend to find, I get a lot, running the podcast, I get a lot of beer sent to me. And I, I lined them all up the other day in my beer cellar um, by style, just so if I wanted a beer, I'm like, and I, I could kind of find the particular style I wanted easily. And I was actually quite surprised that out of all the different beers brewed that I had more lagers than anything else. Yeah, it seems to be the one category where um, some are absolutely outstanding. You know, some are really like world-class and others are just okay. And there's just something about it that quite doesn't hit that mark you expect with a, a, a really good pilsner or heller's lager so can you just talk what what are some of the best practices you can do and adopt when it comes to um fermenting lager beers yeah well, when it comes to that you know it's especially when you talk to a lot of folks who you know aren't in the brewing industry but love craft beer you know it's people assume that lager brewing is the easiest <laughs> you know what i mean and you're just like you know especially when, when you have any experience no matter what you're just like no, that's just the hardest. Yeah, <laughs> like, that, for it, sure. It, yeah, because the, the thing, you know, what separates it is like in a logger, if you mess up, if you miscalculate something or something's not balanced, like you will taste it and you're, it's, you know, it's just brew another batch. And yeah. Throw that one, there's you nowhere know? to hide, is there? Yeah, there's, there really is. You can't cover it up with a dry hop or nothing like that. So, yeah, when it comes to logger brewing, some of them are more, more popular strains. We have our, um, uh, our OIL 113, which is a Mexican lager. Um, and that's probably our most like bulletproof, 
house lager. It's just super clean, super efficient, um, and it's just really, really smooth. And you can kind of use it with, with pretty much whatever you know style of lager that you want to do for the most part. Um, and that's a, you know one of the misconceptions too that a lot of folks ask is you know, can I use your Oktoberfest strain on a pilsner? And you're like, absolutely, you can. You know, like it's it's you can use a Mexican lager and brew a Doppelbach if you wanted to. You know you know, those kind of things. And so, you know, the creativity never really ends there. And so mm. that's, you know, my, my personal favorite style blogger is it's a Pilsner cause I can, I can have 15 of them and be all right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, yeah so when it comes to that, yeah, the Mexican lager and then our OAL one, one, four, which is our Byron lager stream, which is my personal favorite. Um, yeah. It just really insinuates hops a little bit, it has that right amount of sulfur if properly lagered. And it's just, it's, it's my, my favorite bulletproof smooth strain that we have uh, when it comes to lagers. And so some of my recommended techniques, um, you know, might sound a little out the bubble, but actually, you know, pitch your lager strains at ale temperatures. And so pitching, you know, at 65 to 67, somewhere around that range, you know, for the first 24 hours really gives your yeast the boost that it, that, you know, lager yeast, the, the boost that it needs. Uh, there's a misconception that there's going to be lingering esters or things like that. And there's really not. Um, we, this is our suggested method for all lager brewers. I've personally brewed with that many times and it's, it's my go-to method and everything comes out, you know, really clean, efficient, cuts down in your tank time. Um, and so my fermentation suggestion is, you know, pitch in the mid sixties, for the first 24 hours um, until you see like really consistent activity. And once you start seeing consistent activity, slowly drop your temp down two to th two to three degrees every hour or two. Um, so once you have consistent, con consistent activity for 24 hours, you know, take it down a little bit. So it goes 65 and then drop it to 62, drop it to 60, drop it to 57, you know, drop it a little bit all the way down to you're in like the low fifties. Um, yeah, the sweet spot for, for primary fermentation is, you know, 50 to 55 and those kind of things. So, um, and then once there, you know, primary fermentation goes as planned, um, you know, take your sensory, make sure you do a diacetyl rest. Um, and after, for what I do with diacetyl rest, you know, during primary is when I'm at, you know, I have my target terminal gravity and I'll just say it's two, for instance, two Plato right around if I'm like a degree, degree and a half Plato away from terminal gravity, I'll let it free rise a little bit. So, you know, it'll go 55 to, you know, 57 or 58 degrees. I'll let it clean up for a couple of days. And then once it, once I pass sensory test, once I pass diacetyl test, I'll drop it down all the way to lagering temperature. And I might, my sweet spot for lagering is about 35 or so. Right. Okay. And how yeah. long would you leave it to, to lager for? Um, or does it just depend on the, the type of lager be trying to yeah, produce? It, it kind, of kind of depends on the, you know, the, on the time, but typically, you know, if you're brewing kind of like a standard, you know, American lager or Pilsner, those kind of things, typically, you know, three, three to four weeks of lagering is a pretty good saw. It's a pretty good solid spot. You know, I mean, the longer it sits in there, the more it's going to clean up. Um, yep. 
but yeah that's kind of the that's kind of the, the sweet spot for me awesome i'm actually brewing a vienna lager next so uh partly i was just kind of harvesting information for me um for myself so <laughs> but i know there are a lot of um, brewers out there that are starting to produce lagers so um yeah that's that's amazing um i guess two questions to round up um firstly uh, with your very much with your social media marketing hat on like um how do you pitch yeast to people how do you market yeast because I can see with the, obviously with a beer, you know, you can uh, you get a photo yeah. and it looks nice or whatever you do. But like you know, when it comes to yeast, it's like I, I, I was talking to my wife before we started recording about um, you know the, the nature of this podcast. She's like, "How do you market yeast?" I was like, "I'm gonna ask, I've got to ask that question." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think when it comes to, to yeast, you know, you know, maybe it's just the romantic side of me. I think the the yeast is the sexiest raw ingredient when it comes to you know brewing. Um, and there's so much character. So it's really fun when, you know, a yeast has a certain personality to it. Um, and when I say personality, I mean like, you know, over the years, people, you know, will, from my, from my point of view, they'll use like this strain always on lagers or this one always on hazy IPAs, this one on, you know, whatever style, but when it comes to the, to, you know, just in the same way beer is that, you know, in a beer, you market the flavors and the smoothness and, in the process and those kind of things. I think a lot of that can really pertain to, to certain yeast strains as well. Um, you know, for instance, like, you know, we, we've branded some strains to really make things fun for our, you know, our customers and those kind of things. And it really just gives it personality. And it's like, um, you know, yeast is so flexible and like, for instance, like Kvike's, you know, it's crazy. They ferment in the mid nineties and they're super efficient and they're fruity or they're citrusy or they're stone fruit or like whatever it is. And in that same model, you know, when it comes to marketing yeast is like it, you tie that personality in with the education side. And so, you know, a lot of like I was touching earlier on like the questions that we got, like what strain pertains to certain styles or what's the best way to get more ester production or those kind of things. Um, is that it really comes down to just helping, helping the brewers to see what they want. And so when it marketing yeast, it's like, you know, we have our product kind of speaks for itself in terms of being the freshest and freshly propped. Um, and then on top of that, you pile on the cool things, the, the extra production that it can do. And it's, you know, it's pineapple, it's mango and it's honey and it's all these things. And then saying like, it'd be really cool if you use that on like, you know, a juicy pale ale. It works well with, you know, whichever hops it works well with cascade hops, works well with Sabro. Um, and the experimentation, you know, helps brewers really dial in like what they want you yeah. know and i think that i think that the, my my favorite part is that it's so much fun talking to brewers because like you know the brewers are the most creative people on the planet they're just like what if i got this strain in these three hops and i use this process and ferment it at this temperature i'm like fucking do it man yeah. <laughs> like, please do like i want to drink it you know what i mean so you know when it comes down to the to the marketing element it's like it's really listening to the consumer, them telling us what they want and us building this package of, you know, yeast characteristics, personality and best usages mm. and giving it to them. Yeah. And then have them just having an overall great experience with it. Having just been like, everything worked as it was supposed to, everything went smoothly, the beer tastes great. And I, it was really easy for me, you know, one of those things. Yeah, I mean, that's what you want, isn't it? There's nothing worse than when you have a, um, a yeast pitch and it's just a complete, it's a nightmare for one reason or another. Yeah. 
There's one he used, oh, yeah. um, I used once where he, I just couldn't get it to, you know, it was just not flocculating at all. It's like an ale, yeah. a, a, you know, a, quite a traditional ale strain, and it was just a nightmare to package, you know. Yeah. And then, and then, because it was all cast beer as well, you know, you get a landlord being like, "Is it meant to be? Is it meant to be cloudy?" It's like, no, it's not meant to be cloudy, yeah. but you know, and it's, yeah. and then, but if they left it long enough, you know, it was absolutely clear as a bell. And I couldn't get my head around this one particular um, yeast in bottle condition beer. It would just go clear like straight away in a cask you had to leave it much longer even with the uh, findings you had to leave it a l- loads longer for it to actually clear i think a lot of landlords were just impatient were just like quick get it on and so yeah. they'd be pulling this really murky brown beer <laughs> and it's just like it's, that's yeah it's not meant to look like that but no. you know anyway yeah but I mean, that's what it comes down it's like you know you know for if i was like to you know to wrap it and then tell a brewer it's like you know I know my job's complete when they've slept well at night, Yeah, you know, cause I, I do know the feeling of pitching a yeast, you know, on an afternoon coming in the next day and there's no activity and you're like, uh, what's going on? Do did I do something wrong? Is the yeast bad? Was it, you know, what, what's going on? And then, you know, you have, especially, you know, when you're in a professional setting, you're like, is something infected? Did something not go wrong? Cause you've just lost a bunch of money. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, when it, when you, when you're able to bring it down and like, you know, we focus on just making things as seamless and easy as possible for the brewers. Cause we, you know, there's no greater feeling than pitching a yeast. And then an hour later you see activity. You're like, yeah, that's what I like to see. That's a great feeling. I've had so many sleepless nights, um, for, you know, when I've, when I've pitched a yeast and, and, um, and it's mostly been the ones I've experimented on rather than like, you know, the, the, the core range beers that I know will ferment, in this particular way at this particular time, if I've done like a special and and I've pitched, you know, a particular yeast and it's just not doing anything. um, It's just a horrible feeling. And, you know, it's not like you can ask it and you're whispering your fermenter, come on, tell me what's up, Rob. But (laughs) (laughs) it's not doing anything. But, and then you troll the internet and all the literature and try and find out what's wrong. And, and it's, yeah, it's horrible. Utterly horrible. Um, that nightmare comes down to uh, yeast not working and CO two leakage. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Save that one for another day. Um, so I guess last question then, um, not directly yeast related, but um, I mean, what, where do you see craft beer heading in the states at the moment, particularly with um, you know the COVID and turmoil and everything? Yeah. There's been a lot of change in the USA. Um, yeah. for various reasons over the last year um what what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on the craft beer industry over there and where, where do you see it all heading um i think it's heading you know the, the cool thing about the industry as a whole is that they're hyper creative and flexible um you know uh, brewers are and then you know brewery business models can be so and i think what it's done i think it's going to come down to one thing and it's it's gonna it this one thing divvies out to packaging it divvies out to, you know, uh, keg sales It divvies out to just your business model as a whole, but it really comes down to quality. Um, now that, especially in the States right now, you know, for those who are capable, um, you know, 100% of your beer is going in cans, bottles, crowlers, or, you know, some, some form of packaging. And, you know, if you don't have your, your, QC set in place, you don't have consistency, people will know. And I think, you know, the brewers are really d- doubled down on having 
you know, high quality product, you know, packaged the right way using the right equipment and really taking their time and testing things to make sure everything's proper. I think those breweries will, you know, will show growth and, and continue to grow, you know? And so, um, and I know a lot of brewers are, are focusing on direct to consumer sales. And I think that's going to be a big thing probably in the next couple of years as well. Um, you know, but it goes down to quality. It's like the last thing you want, if you spend, you know, 20 bucks on a, on a 750 bottle of beer is that if the beer is average, you know, it's not going to be bad, but even if it's just like, Oh, it's, it's all right. You know, people are going to be like, I want great beer. I want great products. Yeah. And it's really going to, you know, shape the industry in that way. Yeah. Well, you know, just there's so many great beers that are out there now, you know, and I think yeah. as well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how, small or seemingly insignificant you are you know if you've got a license and you're able to brew and sell that beer commercially it doesn't matter to a consumer how whether you're one barrel or hundred thousand barrels or whatever you know um in terms of production um like all the consumer sees is the the can or the bottle and you know labels are getting sexier and, and and look better branding's getting better um you know yeah. and it's the beer's got to be top notch and i think with the, the again um given that the quality is going up and up and up every you've got yeah. you've got you've got to be amazing really yeah. and, that, and that's the you know the fun element it's like it it you know the quality is now going to come to the forefront even for you know the average beer iq of a standard drinker is just going up and so they'll be able to know if something's like you know high quality or low quality and they'll be able to know it and it's going to give a chance for those smaller brewers who maybe don't have you know the the, the same distribution footprint or something like that those like well they have the highest quality beer and i love those people and i'm going to go out of my way to spend money and drink at from their you know from their inventory yeah totally bill well bill it's been absolutely amazing to have you on the podcast yeah. Hey, my, my pleasure, man. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. We make your beer look as good as it tastes and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. Cheers.